This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery... Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello, and welcome to episode eight of John Richardson and the Future Notes. This is our climate change show. I am John Richardson, and I am joined by the Future Notes, Mr. Mark Stevenson. Hello. And Mr. Ed Gillespie. Hello. Greetings to all those people who are joining us fresh from the hilarious and informative interviews that we've given over the airwaves uh, in recent weeks, who've heard our 30-second snippets and decided that this was the podcast for them. Apologies to anyone joining us from the interview on the Sarah O'Connell show, which uh, we gave today, where I made a, a tactical error to record from a tent on a beach, but discovered in the process we haven't seen each other for a long time, gentlemen. Mark is rocking a sensational goatee beard. Well, I, I don't think it's sensational. I don't know whether I'm going to keep it. Oh, you've got to. It looks great. Well, <laughs> I said no one ever about any goatee in history. <laughs> I liked it. It really cheered me up. It suits your face. <laughs> because it hides it. You could read it that way or you could say it accentuates certain features. I don't know if it's just that it's locked down and I haven't seen a lot of faces. Yeah. But your face looked different to me and it, it cheered me up. Yeah. I mean, I've never had a beard before. Well, I had one in my 20s and I thought, if not now, when? So, yeah, it's got past the itchy stage. And now I just look in the mirror and kind of go, oh, you're grey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you said that in such a haunting tone. The grey patch on my beard is just on one side. So I look like a kind of inept badger with only one <laughs> grey streak down one side of my face. We've had uh, emails and tweets. Thank you for all of those. There's a there's a sort of dual thread coming in on the emails. It's uh, people being very kind, which we should acknowledge and be grateful for in these dark times of internet communication. Uh, people asking for certain topics, most of which I'm pleased to say are coming up anyway. And then people asking... The problem is, Mark and Ed, you've, you've painted yourselves as people who are just broadly helpful and positive. So we get a lot of just generic, can you help me emails. And one comes in from Martha, who's enjoying the podcast. She's uh, due to graduate. She doesn't want to end up with one of the people that we talked about in our work podcast, 85% of whom don't like their jobs. So she says, how do I end up getting a role in this positive area of development? What can I do? And what companies are actively working towards the new society? that might want to employ a graduate with a French and history degree? Well, I mean, the thing is, I think both Ed and I will say there is no direct route. And what I always say to people is your career won't make sense in the windscreen, but it will make sense in the rearview mirror. It will be about the values you chose and they will guide you more than the actual job itself because you'll, you'll eventually find the job where your values and your passions meet if you keep them true. And if you don't, you'll end up doing a job that you hate and become one of the 85%. So it's more about attitude than looking for a specific job, I think. I think also the other thing to do is to aggregate yourself with like-minded folk who might be up for starting something which is fixing a big problem. I think yeah. all the big opportunities and the meaning, and it goes back to the quote that Mark used, I think, in a few episodes back, was saying, you know, find something bigger than yourself and dedicate your life to it. And I think that's where... That's where I started out in a way when I transitioned from marine biology into sustainability is that there were, there were no agencies doing the work I wanted to do. So I had to start one. Yeah. I mean, it's true. If you want to be an inept badger, hang out with other inept badgers. <laughs> <laughs> so this is our climate change episode. Now, I, I messaged you in the week and I said, look, this is, this is obviously a big one. It is the topic that so many other topics have referenced back to. It's a, it's a thing we're all aware of trying to change. I said, look, this is clearly going to be a biggie. 
what should I drink? Ed, I believe you said start with lighter fluid and work your way up to napalm. I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, said, yeah, I think it was a series of shots. You say start with something light and breezy, like loads of fluid, and then and build your way up to napalm slammers. So then I said, well, what I'll do is I'll have a series of drinks on hand and I'll drink each time I despair of the world. And Mark, you set yourself up for an incredible task. You said, no, drink when you feel optimistic. And I think that's a wonderful challenge. So I have, uh, bearing in mind we're talking about climate change, I picked the the most locally sourced drink I have available, which is a Lake District whiskey. So just up the road, this one's called Steel Bonnets, uh, and it's a blend of uh, English and Scottish. Mm-hmm. But they are the, the Lakes Distillery are in the process of making England's first single malt of ingredients sourced here. So I have I have the drink on hand, and each time that you make me feel like we're going to be okay and we're going to progress to a better society, I'm going to have a drink. So if I'm drunk at the end of this, then you've done a sensational job. Yeah, it does, it does mean, John, that you're going to be looking at that glass thinking, I wish I'd have a drink of it for about the next 20 minutes and yeah. not being able to touch it, though, as we go into why we fucks. So uh, you know, maybe have a little fuckery chaser. I had a little sip when I was picturing your little beard uh, <laughs> at the beginning. I remembered your beard and it made me so happy I had a little sip. So I've greased the wheels somewhat. We should have got you some climate positive gin, John. If I'd known about that, if I'd thought about this properly, because there is actually a bottle of gin that's been made in Scotland by a distillery which uses peas uh, as the kind of the source of the distillate and it's been calculated that because the peas are nitrogen fixing there's actually carbon negative you absorb carbon dioxide by drinking the gin oh that's a very dangerous thing for me to believe that by <laughs> drinking more gin i'm saving the world that okay. is a very slippery slope for me to be on cheers to that oh i felt happy then here's another drink this is going really well <laughs> mm. So we we are on the back of a record spring, a very dry May. I'm going to ask you, I suspect you've been asked this question before, why we're so fucked in terms of climate change, uh, handing over to Captain No Fun and major problems to follow. <laughs> is this the part of your job that people just assume that is your entire job? Is it just climate change all the time? No, I mean, I think it, it certainly didn't used to be. I've, I've felt like I've been talking about this for 25 years. And to be honest, you feel like you have to kind of, you had to roll out some of the impactful stuff and some of the, the clarity on the severity and urgency of the challenge because people just were a bit blasé about it. And I think that's actually shifted now. It's getting so close to us now. Uh, and as you said, John, you know, this is not just a dry May. It's like it's the hottest and driest May on record. And it comes on the back of all of these hottest years on record, hottest days on record. 2019 was the second hottest year ever after 2016. We've had nine of the 10 hottest years in the last decade since 2009. You know, it just goes on and on. And we've now got a kind of concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere of 418 parts per million, which is the highest it's been for 3 million years. So, yeah, I mean, people do think it is the main thrust of the job, but it's also because climate change is a symptom. The manifestation of climate change is the symptom of something that's gone terribly, terribly wrong with the way that we live in and on the planet. And you can see this, especially in the last couple of years, where you know we've almost forgotten about Australian fires because of the COVID crisis, which has subsumed them. But we've had the Amazon fires, we had the extreme fires in Portugal and Greece, we had the Greenland ice sheet melting, we've got these polar vortices which are hitting us in winters, you know, bringing these beasts from the east, the extreme cold temperatures coming down because of the disruption to the jet stream. You know, we've got these problems with methane clath rates, uh, these deep sea methane storage burps coming out. They call it the methane dragon because methane is much more potent as a greenhouse gas. You throw in droughts, hurricanes, floods, you know, ocean acidification. And really what's happening here and the reason why you have to kind of articulate the severity of the problem is because what we're seeing is is tipping points now. We're seeing simple, linear, predictable trends. So in Australia, it was you know, increased temperatures, reduced rainfall, austerity cuts to fire and forestry services, combining through tipping points to create exponential chaotic and non-linear outcomes, i.e., you know, these massive, uncontrollable wildfires which burn across vast swathes uh, of the country. And in a sense, it all came home to me, actually, really in January this year, where I was doing a workshop at the Bank of England on non-linear risk where we're talking about the things which are low probability, but high impact. Uh, And the three things we were discussing at that workshop were 
pandemics, you know, nonlinear climate change and economic crises. And, you know, now here we are, we've got all three. So it's in a way, it's been like a slow motion car crash, only it's now we've kind of switched the slow-mo off and we're getting the rapid acceleration uh, as everything comes to a head. How are you feeling about that drink, John? I just pushed the whiskey away a little bit. <laughs> um, I might just have the water. That was um, that was big. I'm sort of wary of handing over to you, Mark. It doesn't feel like there's much more to add other than the fact that <laughs> this has been a slow motion car crash and we're about to hit the wall. Yeah, I mean, I quite like a, a phrase by a man called Johan Rockström, who uh, runs the Potsdam Climate Research Centre. And he said, uh, you may have started to notice that the environment is sending back invoices. Um, so if you look, for instance, at uh, the hurricane season, which has got more and more severe. So, you know, um, I think it was Hurricane Florence a couple of years ago. Somebody had worked out what the cleanup bill for that was. And that was $17 billion that had to be found out of nowhere. So the economic cost is also just extraordinary. You've now got, you know, very serious business people, you know, that's Michael Bloomberg or Tom Steyer, the hedge fund manager, you know, just going, we have to, we've got to sort this out now because the economic cost of not sorting it out is is insane. And so the, the battle is everywhere. I mean, the smart money has been betting on climate change as in, you know, saying we have to stop it. We have to do something about it for quite a long time now. And when the money starts to move, you know it's real. You can have any amount of denial, but when hedge fund managers are talking about we have to do something about climate change, otherwise there'll be nothing left to invest in, you know the reality is here. And, and the Bank of England have been going about this for ages. Mark Carney, ex-governor of the Bank of England, has been talking about this for a long time. The World Economic Forum, I mean, you know, these are not normally associated as, you know, big green organizations who care about the environment, but they're going, if we do not sort this out, there will be nothing to invest in. And we've been treating the uh, environment as if it's something we can, you know, just abuse. And of course, you know, that's like punching a hole in your own spaceship. So I, I think that the argument has now largely been won, actually, in terms of like most people think climate change is a problem. You saw the success of the Extinction Rebellion stuff. And yes, it is a large part of what Ed and I do. But again, you know, as Ed said, it's a symptom of everything else. It's a symptom of the, the breaking of the social contract, the marketization of everything, mm. the retreat of democracy, the failure of the media to actually talk about this sensibly. So loads of people aren't that informed about it. And and the story that we've been telling you know, about climate change to, you know, in our world has finally become mainstream. And in a way, that's quite annoying because it used to, I used to feel special. And now everybody knows, knows about it. You know, you know, yeah. you used to go to dinner parties and think I can definitely annoy a whole bunch of people here by talking about climate change. And now they're all agreeing with me. Um, you talked a lot about the economic argument slowly being won and a sort of slow motion car crash gives the impression that climate change itself has been a slow and gradual process over the years. Is that the case? Has it, has it been happening a little bit for a long time? Or has it happened very recently? Well, the thing is, it's been happening ever since we, we sparked up the Industrial Revolution. Uh, you know, well, before the, that, the, it, it's been happening ever since we, we sparked up agriculture, in fact. Well, that's true, actually. Yeah, go even further. But it, yeah, let's say it, it really picked up a pace around about 1850 when we when we kicked off there. Yeah, that was a very successful second album for climate change, the Industrial yeah. Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The thing is, I think what's brought the kind of clarity into the, the moment right now is, you know, we emitted about a thousand gigatons of carbon in the 150 years from 1850 to, to 2000. And then we added another 500 gigatons in the next 15 years. And now our carbon budget is around about, if we're going to hit like one and a half degrees, which is what the Paris Agreement on Climate Change sets us out up to do by 2050, then we've got around 335 gigatons that we can emit. And our annual emissions are around about 36 gigatons a year which means we're actually going to have to hit a seven and a half percent reduction every single year but to put that in context you know we actually have thousands of gigatons of unburnable carbon still left on the planet so there's a huge disconnect where there's still a systemic denial there may not be a denial of climate change per se but there is certainly still a denial of the fact that most of the fossil fuel reserves that we say were, are, are valuable and are worth something, as we touched on in the energy issue, are still out there being described as incredibly important economic assets. And they're probably not, because most of this stuff simply cannot be burned. And that's why I think, you know, you get into this sort of military scenario. Uh, you know, Mark touched on the fact it's the World Economic Forum, but also if you look at the UK government's own Ministry of Defence Global Strategic Trends report. You know, this is not 
Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth here saying this. This is your business world and your military world describing climate change as the highest certainty, most likely and biggest impact risk that we face, which is why I sort of, you know, go back to those military acronyms that people use so much. It's like snafu, it's like, you know, situation normal or fucked up or, or foobar, which is fucked up beyond all recognition or even a shit show. Because actually where we are right now, this is, this is clusterfuck territory this is a disastrously mishandled situation that's got incredibly out of control and we're, and we're on the knife edge i mean the job that i've joked that i couldn't talk about is actually i'm on an advisory board for climate change strategy for the ministry of defense and what's interesting about the conversations i'm having there is that the radical ideas that may well have actually got me shot a few months ago are now being taken more seriously you told me something i think when we were planning the first series of ultimate warrior that we have this uh, conversation about climate change as we need to start doing something now. And you told me, I think, even if we stopped emitting now, some of the change is, is inevitable because of the situation we've got to. So even if we stopped emitting, there would still be a certain temperature rise. Oh, yeah. When you think about it, 90% of the heat from climate change has gone into the water because the water is 800 times more dense than the air. So even if we stop emitting tomorrow, the oceans are still too hot. They're still going to be melting mm. Antarctica and Greenland. And there's nothing we can do about that unless we've, unless somebody's got an option out there for cooling the oceans. And what that means is we're going to have to have what they call negative emissions, which people don't want to talk about, which is where we're going to have to start removing carbon dioxide and methane from the atmosphere. So we'll get on to the uh, happy bit at the end where you make me drink by telling me that negative emissions are possible and achievable in the next three to four weeks. Uh, but before <laughs> that, we have to do the why are we in this situation? Why are we fucked? How has it happened that we're so late? As you've, you've both sort of referenced at some point, you used to say these things and people would laugh at you or it would be an argument or you'd at least have some to and fro about whether climate change is real. Why are we only now getting to the point where that's accepted? Well, I think, you know, partly because we've ignored the science for 200 years. You know, Jean-Baptiste Fourier was the one who first described the greenhouse effect uh, way back in the 19th century. And, and even like renowned physicists like Sven Arrhenius were saying, well, actually, if you burn billions of years of fossilized sunshine in the blink of a geological eye, then it will probably have some global temperature implications. So I, I think that's been part of the problem. The other side of it is, you know, we do have this sort of tragedy of the commons going on, whereby because the atmosphere and its impact is a collectively shared impact, people exercise their own selfish right to exploit it in a way where the costs are borne by everyone, but the advantages may be reaped by themselves. So there's a lot of that individualistic gain. And there's a terrible sort of colonial exploitation element to that as well. Um, one of the reasons that we haven't acted as radically as we should or could have done on climate change is because the worst brunt of climate change impacts are still being borne by people least responsible for it who tend to be poor people of colour around the world. And that's part of the real grist. Um, and I think it's also because it's a wicked problem. It's difficult to resolve because of all the complex interdependencies. You know, as we've touched on and, and Mark referenced right at the beginning, it's like it touches energy, it touches travel, it's food, it's finance. There is no simple resolution. And actually, the solutions to it are not true or false. They're on a sliding scale of better or worse and they're usually the symptom of another problem this is why climate change has not been dealt with in the right way and you know i think the having to have the government episode last week the abject failure of any political leadership on this because it is the perfect thing for any politician just to kick into the long grass and not do anything about the other reason is is that climate change does move slowly so you can know this sort of 20 or 30 years ago, as, as Ed and I did and a bunch of other people did, and, and as I said, even 200 years ago. But it's, it's not happening immediately. It's not an immediate crisis. So it is always easy to, to put off. It's because the, the consequences are not immediately related to, to the action. And the other thing I think I have to say is that the communication around climate change and the threat we face has been fucking awful. And one of the reasons is, and I say this with great affection for them, is that scientists generally are terrible at storytelling, sense-making in a public space. And they've generally totally misunderstood or, or the climate activist role has generally misunderstood what, what actually engages people. And so half of mine and Ed's job is actually trying to work out how you engage people emotionally in this complex stuff, not just in this abstract science thing. And also a lot of the messaging has always been, I always think has been the wrong way around, where, where it's all like, we have this climate change problem and the reason is because human beings are terrible and evil and stupid. And actually there was a huge opportunity, and there still is a huge opportunity to say, no, 
actually, this climate change warning is a massive opportunity for us to green the world, have clearer skies, less air pollution, healthier lives, uh, better economies, all that kind of stuff. And that argument, I think, has never really been put forward very well. And, and the other thing I think that's happened is climate change has ended up being politicised like everything else seems to. So going back to our episode about politics, whereas you know doing things about climate change, renewable energy, all that kind of stuff, is often seen as kind of like a, a left-wing socialist type of idea. And of course, that's not true as the Extinction Rebellion process have shown us but that politicization of it has put some people off going oh well god i don't want to be worried about climate change if i have to start reading the fucking guardian i mean what would that do to me you know at my dinner parties how has that been allowed to i was struck by it earlier ed when you said you know this isn't greenpeace talking you know as if there is that view that the people warning you have something to gain by warning you and it, you know it's only trusted when it comes from a sort of conservative economical rational voice how has that been allowed to happen i mean partly i think there's a kind of instinctive way of framing denial in multiple different ways. You know, there's the obvious kind of, you know, outright denial. But if you know the Kubler-Ross, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who wrote The Model of Grief and the sort of five stages of grief, and they are denial, anger, depression, bargaining and acceptance. And actually, in fact, you can see that in sort of climate change engagement and acknowledgement as well so you know you get that outright denial this is not happening then you get the anger it's like well this can't be happening how has it been allowed to happen to the depression well it can't be happening to me you know what have i done to the bargaining let's negotiate and it's very difficult to negotiate with a climate uh, that's changing and then the acceptance you know we are where we are and in in a, in a way i often go back to a quote from ayn rand you know who wrote atlas shrugged who's a kind of doyen and author of the right where she said you know we can evade reality but we can't evade the consequences of evading reality and so they've got away with this as well because denial is a very comfortable place to be because if you're in denial then you don't have to change you don't have to do something differently and we can't talk about that denial without also mentioning the fact that we still do have you know hundreds of millions of pounds a year spent on lobbying by what we might call predatory delay of the vested interests you know who are trying to slow the transition now, I don't think anyone's in outright denial of the transition away from fossil fuels right now, but they're definitely putting the brakes on it because it makes it more convenient for their businesses whilst the costs are still borne by everyone else. And I think that's sort of a bit of classic human brinksmanship in a way. A mate of mine used to joke that our response to climate change was like turning up to an earthquake with a dustpan and brush. It was like, oh, don't worry, we'll just we'll sweep this up, it'll be fine. And in one sense, every intelligent culture will at some point through its own in innovation and ingenuity bump up against the limits of its own planet now that may be a, perhaps an inevitable consequence of progress the question is and the proving ground is how does that species then respond when it encounters those limits does it blindly blunder on in complete oblivion and ignorance of the consequence of its actions or does it have that damascene wake-up moment and go aha, this is our epiphany, this is our wake-up call, this is where we do things differently, as Mark would put it. Yes, there's this thing called the Fermi paradox, or sometimes referred to as a Drake equation as well. They both basically say, um, if there's intelligent life out there in this vast universe, how come we've never heard from it? And one of the answers is that any intelligent life form gets to this stage of advancement and therefore destroys its own planet and therefore never gets to <laughs> the stars. Um, so uh, I don't know, how far away is the whiskey now, John? <laughs> well, I mean, I watched the uh, the space takeoff this week. It's never seemed odder to me, that idea of let's go to space with a view to maybe living on Mars or with a view to privatizing the concept of space travel. The world has never been in a state with America on fire and the coronavirus raging around the planet that you think, the fuck are we doing? Why didn't yeah. somebody say a couple of months ago, let's shelve that, let's not do that for a bit. Um, it's not just jealousy of the two fuckers who got to leave. It's also just genuine, like, what are we doing? I know. A mate of mine described it as like this desire to go to Mars. He goes, it's like we've had an abusive relationship with our own planet, and now we're winking at Mars and going, do you fancy some? 
Yeah, do, you want, <laughs> yeah. do you fancy a bit of us? You know, it's like, and Mars is going, no, I do not. <laughs> so people I really like and trust are online that that says, oh, it's great, isn't it? Isn't it a relief and a great to watch these pinnacles of human achievement? And, you know, it always makes me feel better watching a rocket blast into space. And I think I'd rather see some fucking work done on the problems we've got now. Having said that, there is an interesting relationship between space travel and environmentalism in that pretty much no astronaut that's ever been to space Mm. has come back without having an environmental epiphany because they see how fragile the atmosphere is and how thin it is. And it's just a, a perspective you can imagine, but you can't really feel it until you've been there. They call it the overview effect. And actually, one, one argument for, say, more space tourism is that the more people we get up there, including world leaders, the more likely I would have action on it because you get this overview effect. And it's very well documented in psychology, the overview effect amongst astronauts. Oh, so we send Donald Trump into space. Well, he, nothing would affect and him. And he can't tweet from there for a while. <laughs> and he comes back a revolutionary. <laughs> I mean, I think if we were to go to all the trouble of getting Donald Trump out over the Kármán line into space and off the planet. Surely we should keep him there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I did want to ask about the point you made about scientists that have known a lot longer than most of us the science haven't been able to convey that in a way that has caught on in the sort of public imagination. Is there much work in your world between linking scientists to artists and storytellers, as you would call them, to say, look, you know this stuff, but no one's listening to you, and these people can be heard, so let's get you together. Yeah, I mean, there's there's been massive amounts going on. I mean, you know, the culture declares um, aspect of Extinction Rebellion builds on the works of initiatives like Cape Farewell, which went back at least a decade or more, which was bringing together artists and scientists in terms of that communication challenge. And I used to give talks to to artists, you know, probably about 15 years ago now, saying, come on, guys, this is an existential challenge. Surely you can find some creative grist and inspiration in trying to help engage people. And, and, and at that point, actually, I used to get quite a bit of pushback from artists saying, oh, no, don't be so didactic. You know, we can't tell people the way things are or what they should be doing. Um, and I think that's obviously changed a lot. And I think one of the reasons we're seeing so much more now is because the cultural industries are fundamentally engaged in the challenge. But it feels like the challenge for them is not, as you said, nobody's presenting this as A, a solvable problem or B, something that in the process makes our lives and our planet better. And that that's a harder thing to convey as an artist. And it's a harder thing for people to get hold of i still feel like it's something we've talked about in terms of food that you know part of improvement is saying you can't have those things you like and with travel part of you know fixing the travel is saying you can't do that thing you like this is the ultimate a the planet is so far damaged anyway that it's you know already we've got worse things coming and b in order to change that you have to radically change your lifestyle and stop doing certain mm. things. And that creates, I guess, just cynicism and despair. Well, yeah, because we, we're, we're constantly told that, you know, we, we can only do what we think we can afford rather than actually what we need to do. And I think the, the point there is you can't negotiate with runaway climate change. So, you know, we're always told there's this economic drag, if you like, on what we might be able to afford to do, which is real, really nonsense. And you even see it where... You know, you get what I would describe as sort of Death Star economics going on, where it's a bit like Darth Vader describing the construction of the Death Star as a great job creation opportunity. Where, <laughs> whereas, you know, we see this with all this high carbon infrastructure, which creates, you know, massive lock ins. So it's like, where people are describing building new oil pipelines or new coal-fired power stations or or even you know the next generation of cars aircraft and ships which will all be based on fossil fuels if we're not careful all of this is acting as a massive drag and and that then lets i think the individual off the hook because i just go if this was so serious if this was so important if this was such an existential crisis then why aren't the government and business really leading on this you know i think people look around them and we're social animals and we just go is anyone else paying attention to this no all right i'll carry on with my business as usual mm. i'm reminded of that great cartoon uh it's, it's two dinosaurs and one of them's got a flip chart yeah. <laughs> and it says, and it says on it um asteroid detection system and the other one goes oh i don't know it looks a bit expensive <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's such an awful thing being a comedian because you take something like that that's clearly relevant and important and funny. And then all I would say is, but even if they'd built that, they would have known the asteroid was coming, but they still wouldn't have been able to do anything about it. Dinosaur can't stop an asteroid coming. So is it, is it not the same thing here that 
to what extent, I guess I'm asking us to move on to the uh, the unfucking, I suppose, but are we not the dinosaurs? Yeah. No, there's two, there's two things to note on that, though, John. I think one is the fact that this is absolutely about consumption, not population. Uh, I think one of the other ways that people excuse themselves is say, oh, you know, what about India? What about China? What about the most populous nations on the planet? And in actual fact, 50% of our carbon emissions come from 10% of the population, which is mainly us in the rich developed world. And that's not even taking into context the historic emissions of which we have a much bigger part of the lion's share. So it's really important to note that there's a consumption element here. And we always want to have sort of bigger, better faster, more, you know, that's also the problem. So I I think the other thing is, I mean, I was involved in a workshop a couple of years ago and we got to the end of the second day and everyone was pretty despondent because it was like, oh my God, this is going to be nasty. Uh, And then a scientist stood up at the end and he just said, what you have to remember is that every tonne of carbon that doesn't go into the atmosphere now alleviates future human suffering in some way, shape or form, and for the sake of the planet too. So presuming that's the case, step one in how we unfuck ourselves is we stop putting carbon into the atmosphere in any way we can. Yeah, I mean, if you look at some of the kind of activists who've been involved in this for the long term, like former head of Greenpeace International, Paul Gilding, uh, in his book, The Great Disruption, he, he actually wrote what he called the One Degree War Plan which was, and I hesitate to use the sort of war metaphor, but he wrote it on the basis of going, if we were serious about keeping climate change to one degree, then then this is what we would have to do. And it is pretty much, you know, you shut down as much coal-powered power stations as you can immediately, you know, and then you begin a very radical war-like mobilisation and transition away from fossil fuels. And it's a fairly compelling document and, you know, and it was actually quite credibly put together. But yes, that's that's what you would do if you were genuinely serious. Mark, I am very thirsty. (laughs) I'm not getting happier. Right. I haven't had a drink since I pictured your little beard, which I know you're thinking about shaving off. So make me feel good. Well, well, should I word it differently for the first time? Yeah. Should I start with can we unfuck ourselves? That's a very good question. And some of it, no. Oh, Christ, man. <laughs> because <laughs> oh, I had the glass in my hand. <laughs> Don't worry. I was just giving you an easy win there. That was me rolling it across the box. Just saying, tap that one in, mate. There's some things we've lost that we can't get back. And particularly when you're talking about some biodiversity loss, some species extinction, arguably some of the human health problems that we've had have been related to climate change and the people that have died, we're not going to get back. So we have to kind of be aware that we've, we've lost a great deal. Can we turn it around? Possibly. And and actually, and actually, <laughs> yes, we can, but we have to believe we can. That's the very first thing we've got to do, because you cannot do this unless you believe it's possible. So if we believe it, then it, there are all sorts of things we can do. And I think, again, I've mentioned this earlier, but I think this moment with the, the pandemic is wakening people up to the what was previously impossible now seems possible in terms of how governments can respond in terms of how we all feel about our relationship to each other and the planet and actually there is this wonderful project and i think you've met them john uh, which is project drawdown yes i have project drawdown and actually it's a wonderful organization and uh, you can buy the book project drawdown and it basically lists um, the 80 things in order of their effectiveness that we could do to keep the earth below 1.5 degrees warming. And, you know, we've covered quite a lot of them in, in the podcast already. So you can reach for that drink because we've already talked about making refrigeration better because that's that's actually number one technical solution is uh, improving refrigeration because it reduces so much waste. And of course, you know, if we can reduce waste, we don't need to produce as much, which reduces the carbon emissions. We've talked about wind turbines and how insanely cheap they are. We've talked about, um, well, you're a vegan and actually moving to a more plant-rich diet is number four on their list and potentially could keep 66 gigatons of CO2 out of the atmosphere. Um, And it goes on and on and on and on of all these things we can do. And what's great is there are people doing things in all these areas now. And we've got suddenly got this wonderful moment with the COVID crisis where sentiment has changed. And when sentiment changes, economies can change because economics is really just sentiment expressed in money. So we're, we're now at this moment where actually now more than ever, 
I would say we have a chance of dealing with the climate crisis. It's woken everybody up. And, you know, Ed and I, as we said, been working with the, with the military. And you see a change in perception in four-star generals about them thinking, you know what, I can't defend our national security without defending everybody else's. So I think we've got this wonderful year's worth now of activism, optimism, technical solutions, diplomatic solutions that can come together. And we have to believe we can. And, you know, and in a way, Ed and I often say that, you know, we've spent 20 years training for this moment. And finally, it feels like we're being invited in at the right level to say the radical things. And people going, oh, yeah, okay, let's do it. Well, I'll have a drink for the idea of military leaders getting together. That's a very positive step, isn't it, for climate change and for global relations? Well, let's hope. I mean, it hasn't happened yet, but that's one of the narratives I'm throwing in at the end. <laughs> it was in the hand again, and you, you snatched it away from me. Uh, Philip K. Dick said this great thing, reality is that when you stop believing it, it doesn't go away. And we cannot protect our national security actually without protecting everybody else's. And pretty soon that's going to come to the fore. And the other good news about that, I think, is that populists on the left and the right, as Donald Trump is finding, are going to have a very hard time because science doesn't care whether you insult it or belittle it. It just comes at you. Drink. Have a drink, for God's sake. I was close. But I'll be honest with you. What I'm feeling is an intense frustration that, and I don't know how you do your jobs because of it. Because even just talking about this for about an hour, I've got an immense sense of the severity of it. And I think I knew that anyway. I've got a sense of the possible solutions. And yet every time we get near one, there's always a, there's always a little, well, yeah. that isn't quite there yet. And, and you mentioned Project Drawdown, who I met. I filmed a show. I insisted uh, we meet Project Drawdown while we were there. Chad came out, we met, we filmed. We had an incredible conversation about... Uh, the things that can be done, refrigeration, diet. These were all ready to go out on what I believed was a huge platform to viewers who wouldn't have had some of those conversations before. And that scene never made it to air because it didn't look very dynamic because it was just two people talking on a roof. And the roof we were on was to show the backdrop, which was the hills of LA, literally on fucking fire because of the climate change. And it still, it wasn't a good enough looking shot for telly. And even mm. when you film the thing and you say, surely people will listen though and they'll enjoy the thing we're talking about. And it, I'm feeling that my shoulders are going up of just, why the fuck aren't we? Surely you can just put that on telly and surely you can just get the people together. I've got two words for you there, John. Fat jihad. <laughs> but I think that's exactly it. I mean, this is the problem. And, then, and you know, this is why Mark and I have banged our heads against the walls of television for 20 years, because everyone going, oh, well, where's it? Where's the engagement? Where's it? Where? People go, you know, people even have the grist to say, you know, where's the conflict? It's like, well, <laughs> where do you want me to begin? I mean, I think... Jeopardy is the telly word, isn't it? Jeopardy. Where's the jeopardy? Well, we're and, all yeah, going to fucking die. How do you like that? The, and this is the nutshell. This is the glorious nightmare of a wicked problem. You know, like Mark was saying with the Project Drawdown mix, uh, and you were just describing as well, you know, it's actually a mix of technical, environmental and socioeconomic solutions, which is why you get all these these tensions where it can often feel like things are never quite getting over the line because there's so many interdependencies involved. You know, we might not be successful, but we owe it to ourselves to try our damnedest in every way, as we would if it was just an individual struggle to do the right thing uh, in terms of this transition. And I think that's the bit where the kind of the engine of hope still comes from. But it is hope that has to come from a place which is the other side of grief. And we've touched on this idea a couple of times. But it's no mm -hmm. good. It's no good coming at this with a sort of happy, clappy, techno utopian optimism going, hey, guys, it'll all be all right if we roll out some more solar panels. This is actually being wide eyed and open hearted to what we've already lost and the change which is already in train in the system. And then getting beyond that and saying, all right, now we've got to roll up our sleeves and be really serious about this because otherwise the consequences don't bear thinking about. And the good news is <laughs> lots of people are rolling up their sleeves and doing yeah. some incredible things. That tells you something. Something has changed in the water and, uh, and that's great. Can you give us anything on a sort of legislative level that is happening uh -huh. at government level to represent some of that well, passion that clearly exists. Well, yes. And what I want to do now is talk about one of my favourite organisations in the entire world. Coldplay. <laughs> well, they are related to Coldplay, actually, because these are the people who pretty much convinced Coldplay to stop touring. So they are dear to my heart. And they are called, <laughs> uh, they are called Client Earth. 
Planet Earth is the weirdest of things. It is both a law firm and a charity simultaneously. So they're funded entirely by um, charitable donation. Um, their biggest donation came from Pink Floyd, actually, from, from David Gilmore. So prog rock saves the world. So there you go. I knew it would. Um, and We've what done they do... well this week. We're quite a way in before, uh, before prog rock saves the world was mentioned. Well, there we go. So there is actually quite a lot of good, it's not all brilliant, but there's quite a lot of good legislation already there in terms of climate change, environmental protection, and so on and so forth. And indeed, financial regulation about risk and, and how to manage it. The problem that Client Earth identified was that whilst it had been written there by good-meaning legislators, nobody was enforcing it. Who's going to enforce it? Okay, Who's going to take the government to court for breaking its own law? Hmm. Okay, Who's going to take that corporation to court for breaking those environmental regulations or whatever? And they said there wasn't enough enforcement. So they just said, right, we'll do that then because we've got the law on our side. And they, I don't think they'd ever been unsuccessful to, to the extent that, that the UK government had to rewrite its own clean air policy uh, because it was breaking its own laws. And it's now to the stage where I think Client Earth has taken the UK government to court, I think three times in one. And, it's, <laughs> and the government now phoned them up beforehand and say, look, can you tell us what we need to do so we don't end up in court with you and us losing again because it's getting embarrassing. So suddenly... You've got lawyers coming on board and actually using the existing levers there to make things happen, which is great. So we kind of already have a lot of the tools there. There is a huge amount going on. And Coldplay are touring. I mean, you know, if that's not a win, I don't know what is. <laughs> Do you know, Mark, that's the first, uh, as a sign of my belief in the two of you, I'm going to finish this whiskey now. That was lovely. Oh, God, that was long overdue. My goodness. Here is me pouring a, a second one for you, Ed. Um, there you go you give me a little bit more and uh, i'll see that one off we've got a few minutes left we're still on the unfucking do you have anything uh you want to say on a sort of legislative or global yeah. level or do you want to talk about individuals well no I, well i think i'd like to talk about both i mean i think the individual stuff is limited and i think you know we've had far too much focus on bloody lifestyle change although it's going to play a role i think actually one of the things we've seen in lockdown is even though we've dramatically had our lives curtailed and, and radically simplified in many ways actually emissions haven't been cut in the kind of substantive way that we might have hoped and that shows that actually a lot of the emissions we have to tackle are systemic and then actually there's a piece of legislation which is being proposed it's not actually in train yet but it comes from people that we know and love one of them is one of my old mentors mark campanali uh, who's been involved in both client earth and a number of different kind of investment style uh, activism around climate change and that they're putting forward a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty which is essentially, you know, like the anti-nuclear weapons, uh, strategic arms limitation talks. And, you know, the three rules there are don't add to the problem, get rid of the existing threat, and then accelerate a peaceful transition. Because the other thing that's going to be really scary, and we touched on this in energy, is if we don't get a kind of radically just and peaceful transition away from fossil fuels, then there's all sorts of failed states that may emerge, which are former petro states like Saudi Arabia and Russia. So I, I think those type of bits of legislation are really exciting because they are collective, collaborative, global. Um, we have we have precedents. They've worked before. So we could see those type of approaches being the kind of thing that if a world is waking up with the right sentiments, could actually then deliver radical change. The other thing I, I think is worth bearing in mind is that we are going to need, as, as I said earlier, this stuff called negative emissions, which is taking the carbon back out of the atmosphere. And that's quite problematic. People don't want to talk about that because they say, well, if we can do that, then can we carry on as normal? And the answer is no. Okay, we've got to do this transition and we've got to take some stuff back. The good news is there's some interesting work on there. One of the ways is we change the way we farm, which we talked about in the food episode and how that can bring back a whole amount of carbon. And actually, I'm involved with something that we're hoping to set up the United Nations Planetary Health Institute, which will be an accelerator for those kind of approaches. And the idea is the accelerator will help get them investment, but also make sure that they're socially and economically acceptable to all peoples in the world. So there's some interesting work going on there as well. Good. I'm going to have some more. This is good. <laughs> that was good. That was the first genuine flurries of optimism I felt there. What is hitting me with this episode is more than anything we've discussed, it's still tempered by a constant and quite needfully relentless message of it has to start now and it's still not enough because we've started late. 
which I, I just don't think you can avoid in this episode. That that broad sense of even the good stuff, it needs to happen sooner than it's going to, and it needs to be bigger than it can be. But that's the same with everything, isn't it? It's a bit like when you're trying to get fit or learn to parent. You know, you kind of go, oh, I wish I'd known this a while ago. And, you know, th- that's not the point. The point is to get on with it now because the, the alternative is, is making it worse. So, yeah. you know, as Ed said earlier, every tonne of carbon we keep out in the atmosphere will have a massive benefit to future humans and the planet itself. So, you know, that's got to be your biggest incentive. You know, it's going to be different. It could be different and good. But if we don't do anything, it's going to be different and bad. Yeah, so instead of couch to 5K, it's going to be couch to two degrees. Lovely. And that's why you two do your job and I do my job, because I've kept trying to stress the negativity and the bleakness of it, and you've kept saying that was a perfect answer. So tell me now, I'm fired up as an individual. I know we've talked about this sort of overrating of lifestyle change. What can people listening and myself do to try and keep that to one degree or to take that ton of carbon out of the atmosphere? Oh, well, there's loads of things. I mean, actually, we talk about lifestyle change. Actually... If you do want to eat more plant-based diet, okay, and uh, do more exercise, so you're taking transport less often, then that's really good for you, and it's good for the planet. So, you know, it's good for you, good for the planet, probably good for your sex life. So, first of all, get sexy to save the world. Have you seen my medical records? <laughs> my last medical, the doctor wrote, impossibly sexy. Cannot get sexier. So, you know, I appreciate that may be good advice for other people, but just a little nod in my direction wouldn't hurt. So, so there's that. You can also change the way you invest. So you can look at your, if you've got a pension or any kind of investments, you can look to those and you can ask your you know, financial advisor or your pension fund to go, look, just take me out of fossil fuels. I don't want nothing to do with it. And that's easily done now. The other thing is we all work somewhere, most of us, you know, if you if you if you do have a job you can now start to i think in this moment be a lot more active about saying well what are we doing here about this issue and you'll find a m- much more open door now in fact ed and i are currently working with a, a huge organization where they're saying we're going to use this crisis to come out of it double down on climate change social justice sustainability reducing our waste so whilst we're sort of limping a bit financially actually we're feeling a bit like Usain Bolt strategically because it's really put some fire on our belly about how we can come out of this as a better organization doing better things and really you know helping to improve people's lives so you know change your workplace get sexy change your investments and you know I hate to um, endorse particular organisations, but I would say if you want to give a charitable donation, then I think one of the best places you can put it is to, is to give it to Client Earth. They have huge success in keeping the polluters out of the world. Ed? I would totally endorse everything Mark said. And I would add, I mean, I think there's a, there's a really lovely bit in the kind of The Future We Choose, which is uh, a book about surviving the climate crisis by our old buddy Tom Rivett Karnak and, and the former UN climate rapporteur Christiana Figueres. And there's a story he tells in there about the Southern Indian monkey trap, which is a hollowed out coconut and which is a sticky ball of rice. And there's a hole in the coconut, which is just big enough for the monkey to get its hand through. And then it grabs the ball of rice. And of course, then when it makes a fist, it can't get its hand out of the coconut. And so therefore trapped. Now, the monkey never lets go of the rice because obviously its instinct is like, I want the rice. And I think perhaps the biggest thing we have to do is try and let go of the old world and try and let go of some of the things that we think are actually really important to us. And I, then I think the flip side of that is then the flying less and the other systemic changes which are going to be required uh, will actually feel much less onerous in terms of the shifts we have to make. As a really super easy one, um, and you mentioned it on the radio this morning, John, I would just switch to a renewable energy supplier. Everyone can do it. It's one thing you can do in the next 10 minutes to, to get online and send a massive signal to the market. And interestingly, you know, we've had periods already this year where it's been really sunny and really windy and there are certain renewable energy tariffs which offer you negative energy prices so people are actually getting paid to consume energy which has got to be good uh, when you're trying to watch your budgets and i and i think lastly i think it is get involved whether it's extinction rebellion maybe that's not quite your flavor but certainly some form of direct action and pressure you know writing to your mp being engaged, being vocal and talking about climate change. My old buddy, George Marshall uh, from the Climate Outreach Information Network always said, you know, one of the most radical things about climate change you can do is to continue to talk about climate change. It hasn't gone away. The wave is coming in behind the COVID wave, behind the economic recession wave. Uh, It's a much bigger wave and we've got to get ready for some big wave surfing. Well, we certainly have talked about it. Uh, It would be 
arrogant of me to believe that I've contributed to the greater good by doing that, but I think you two certainly have. So uh, thank you, as ever. We end, as we always do, with uh, Pointless Futures. Pointless Futures is basically our rival podcast. We discuss the future and the way we want it to look. Pointless Futures is evil Mark and Ed uh, with evil John talking about, here's a great thing I've invented that will make the world worse. What are we talking about this week? So one of the things that's happening at the moment is um, you're now seeing the arms industry um, thinking about um, how it can respond to climate change by creating carbon neutral weaponry. (laughs) (laughs) Surely all weaponry is is carbon reductive and that if you kill someone, they no longer create any emissions. So, But in a way, it does prove just how serious climate change has got on how it is being talked about by people you that normally you wouldn't have thought because they're thinking we can't have wars to sell our arms into on a planet that's been ravaged by climate change because the people won't be fighting anymore they'll most of them will be dead so we need to keep enough people alive for them to fight so we we have to sell them climate neutral weapons it's such a diseased mindset that it kind of blows your mind but yeah. strangely, the fact that, that that conversation is happening, I think, is another signal for hope, actually, and you should reach for another whiskey. Because <laughs> <laughs> we've got carbon-neutral weapons. Well, we've got people talking about carbon-neutral weapons. Which, and which don't shows... think I haven't noticed that we're talking about this the week you reveal you've been working with the MOD. <laughs> this is all linking together a little bit too neatly, isn't it? <laughs> I remember, a de- I remember a decade or so ago seeing a guy uh, giving a talk from the MOD about how a Harrier jump jet was 100% recyclable uh, and thinking that was sort of kind of missing the bigger, bigger picture of its direct impact. I just can't get my head around what the possible argument is. I mean, the idea that war will, war will live on longer than our desire to save the planet. Yeah, well, the, the thing is that there is a lot, there is a great history actually of crossover technology but the trouble is it tends to be quite small fry the big money is unfortunately in death um and that's why they will try and protect the military industrial complex in any way they possibly can and if that means eviscerating your enemies uh whilst doing it with a very low carbon footprint uh then here where we go what a remarkable world we live in for as long as we choose to um what are the innovations have you studied these deeply what are the innovations that make these things greener and more carbon neutral more lasers, less bullets. I think it's quite sci-fi, really. Yeah, it's gone a bit Doctor Evil. More lasers. I like <laughs> more lasers, less less a missiles. Completely eco laser <laughs> <laughs> attached to an ethically sourced, organically farmed shark. Um, <laughs> gentlemen, it's always an absolute pleasure. Thank you for your time. Uh, if that has fired off any thoughts in your mind and you would like to get in touch with us, uh, we have our Twitter account and we have our individual Twitter accounts and we have our post bag, which you can email us on and the details are here. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at John, J-O-N, and the future noughts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letter swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back with a new show next week. Bye-bye.